Hey everyone, you are listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast. We are two neurodivergent mental health professionals in a neurotypical world. I'm Patrick Cassell. And I'm Dr. Neff. And during these episodes, we do talk about sensitive subjects, mental health, and there are some conversations that can certainly feel a bit overwhelming. So we do just want to use that disclosure and disclaimer before jumping in. And thanks for listening. As autistic ADHD business owners, Patrick and I both understand the importance of promotion and doing it in a way that feels authentic and genuine. If you are a neurodivergent business owner and you would like to place your services or products in front of a neurodivergent audience, we are now opening up our podcast for sponsorships and we're providing a 10% discount code for neurodivergent business owners. So if you are an autistic or ADHD business owner, and you'd like to get in front of our audience, reach out to Divergent Conversations Podcast at gmail.com for more information. So over the last two weeks, we have been Did you forget you were setting the stage for a second? No, I just it. like took it takes me a second, Patrick. I don't have my processing speed, yo. We should keep that in. Um Okay, so over the last two weeks, we've been exploring autistic identity and neurodivergent identity, and I can't think of a better guest to have on today than Rebecca Miner, who is neuroqueer and does a lot in the neuroqueer space. And so we're going to dive a little bit deeper into talking about the intersection of queerness and neurodivergence, um, broadening it to autistic and ADHD identities. Okay, Rebecca, I'm going to try to introduce you. I know I'm not going to do it justice, but here we go. So we met on Instagram, which is a weird thing to say. I don't meet people on Instagram anymore. I'm not, it. we met before. Now. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm too, I gap and I get so overwhelmed. So I'm so glad I met you when I, like, when I had a small following and before, when I actually spent time on the app, because <laughs> I've loved, how did we meet? I don't even know how we met, but I love that we did and we've developed what I would say is a really wonderful friendship and we've presented together on neuroqueerness. Um, you are a gender expansive therapist, but if I'm, if I'm tracking, right, you're kind of doing less clinical work, more speaking, more advocacy, lots of trainings. So gender expansiveness and teens, this is your jam. Do I have that right? You do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still seeing too many clients for how much I'm doing the other things, but yes, I'm, <laughs> I am. I, I am not surprised by that. <laughs> so, what yeah. would you like to add about like just giving our listeners some context for who you are? Um, so I am a social worker by training. Um, some people care about that. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, have been in private practice for about five years, um, with a variety of settings, different experiences prior to that. Um, and I work primarily with queer and trans youth and their journey of becoming. Um, and most recently I'm spending a bulk of my time working with parents um, and caregivers to really support them in being able to better support young people. I love that. I've been so encouraged by how many parents are really showing up and they're, they're doing their work to show up for their kids. And I love that you're coming alongside parents in that journey because Cause it's, it's a lot to unlearn and then relearn and, um, and, and just to address like the fear that comes with parenting and our queer kid. You nailed it. Yeah. And that's so often what it is, right? It's just like 
because of a lack of information, there's a lot of fear and concern and feeling like they should have all the answers. Mm-hmm. And so then there's a shutdown, right? And it's like, not because they don't care, not because they don't want to support their kid, but they're stuck. Um, and so that shift can happen really quickly, which is also like an incredibly meaningful piece of the work that feels so different than sometimes longer term clinical work or trauma focused work that I've done, which goes on and on. This is much more like we can, we can take care of this. That's, I like that kind of work. It's funny. I I work long-term as a therapist, but it can be really nice to then have those cases where it's like, oh, we can actually address this in five sessions and get you on your way. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is very like, I feel like a heretical thing to say when you come from the psychodynamic tradition, but it's, I actually really like having a balance of the two. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think how we met is kind of interesting because it goes back to this identity thing. So I was working in the like autism ADHD space primarily. You were working in the gender expansive space primarily. I started seeing like, oh my gosh, there's so much overlap with queerness and it's specifically gender queerness among neurodivergent people. So I started learning about queerness. You, on the other hand, do you want to share what you were discovering in your practice? Yeah. So I, and I was going to say, I think I do remember how we met, which is mostly that I was like, hello, am I autistic? Um, (laughs) Which is probably how you meet a lot of people. But um, I started noticing where I was like, wait a minute, if I really sit down and think about it, it started with one client, right? Who came in and had seen something online and was like, I think I might be autistic. And I was like, hmm that's markedly different. Like what you're describing is markedly different than what my training had been. And like in high school, I had volunteered, um, in what at that point we were calling the special needs classroom, um, and worked with autistic folks and, um, you know, the tropes that I had understood about that were so different than the clients I was working with. But once I started peeling back some of the layers and reading more of the current research, I was like, uh, oh, are all of my clients neurodivergent and I missed it? Um, like, and so it, it really set off this thing for me, um, where I got hyper fixated, um, and was researching like crazy and taking all the self measures, um, and trying to figure out not only what was going on for all of my clients, but also what was going on for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, that's, I think that's when we started talking. Cause I was like, this is just a fascinating clinical thing that I'm seeing. And also I'm not clearly fitting into one of these categories. And I love your diagrams for that reason. Um, cause I'm like, I'm, you know, I've got a little bit of various things and this makes so much sense. The visuals made so much sense to my brain. Yeah. 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 I love, I love that. Yeah. We were having parallel process. And then for me and my process, I was unpacking queer identities, which for me came after the autism discovery, which you were further along in that journey. So it was a really cool friendship where both clinically, but personally, we were kind of exploring like the the other specialty, which we had been led to by our home base. Okay. I'm not, I have a visual of what I'm trying to say, but I'm not putting it into words well. Um, but yeah, I think that's, yeah, that we were able to kind of both explore each other's specialty in conversation. Yeah. And that's when we were like, wait, why aren't people talking about this more? Mm-hmm. And then I think that's when we got the idea for starting to like ask 
our followers questions about that intersection. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think that'd be a helpful thing to get into, but we, we like to anchor in lived experience here. So do you, can you share a little bit more about your own neuroqueerness and your journey around that or whatever you want to share around that? Sure. Um, so I think one of the kind of the place that I've comfortably settled is in using neuroqueer as a label identity wise. Um, I'd gotten comfortable with the concept of queerness and that felt good to me. Um, then I became aware of how inextricably linked I think my queerness is to my neurodivergence. And so it just felt like it made so much sense. Um, and it's easier to say, um, as one, one thing. Um, but I did go through a long process and I'm still navigating the, like, what exactly is going on here? Um, in terms of my own brain, um, I have a trauma history and a history of anxiety. And so those things can confuse some of the, you know, they can present in some similar ways. Um, and so it's, it's been a journey of kind of parsing out like what's potentially autism, what's potentially ADHD, what's potentially trauma or anxiety or this or that, or, you know, being burned out or just the combination of like being alive, um, during a pandemic. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting. Um, at times it's been pretty difficult and emotional. Um, and you've been so lovely and gentle with me, um, which I appreciate, <laughs> um, when I have weird questions, um, or I'm like, does this mean this? And you're like, well, not always. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, so I feel kind of like I definitely meet criteria for ADHD that feels solid. Um, and I, I think <laughs> any, I was going to say anyone in my life would also concur. Um, and then I have like a, a sprinkling of other things that one might consider to be. I call, it, I call it the neurodivergent potpourri bag. Yes. Yes. That's me. Um, <laughs> got some family history in there. Um, so yeah, it's been interesting. Um, and I think professionally, it's always a weird thing to navigate that like personal professional line of how much do I share? How much do I not share? How much is it okay for me to talk about these different things? If I don't feel like I can use the hashtag actually autistic because I don't have a diagnosis, um, do I need formal diagnosis and the thoughts go on, you know? Um, so that's kind of where I am. I'm happy to talk about it. It's a fine thing to well, share. Yeah. And yes, I, I, I think I know that about you from having seen you in public spaces. And that's something I like about your presentation style is how, um, how openly you talk about this. I'm kind of diverging from where I initially thought we might go. And I do want to get back to talking about gender queerness, but think this will wrap into it. Part of what you're talking about is being in process of your own identity as a clinician, but also as a public clinician, you also, I didn't mention this, but you also have a platform on Instagram and you create content as well. Um, I wrote an, a blog post a couple of years ago. That's probably been the one that gets the most feedback from clinicians. And it's about being an identity-based practitioner when our practice is based on our identity in the sense of I am an autistic therapist, therefore autistic clients come to me. Um, 
in our training, we're taught so much about like blank slate, don't disclose. I'm just curious, both Patrick and Rebecca, your thoughts around exploring your identity while you're seeing clients and then also while being a, doing it publicly, not just privately, because there's, there's a lot there. Yeah. See, we're doing a good job today. We're reading each other's facial expressions and all those things. I love that you just asked that question. I just want to also apologize for my voice today to everyone listening who's struggling. Um, I actually just had this conversation in our team meeting with our staff about using identity-based language, and especially if they feel safe enough to do so, because we are a practice that specializes in supporting neurodivergent and queer communities in Western North Carolina. I, I know we've talked about this, Megan, at length, but I do think it's, it's nuanced. We always say that. I feel like that's going to just become incorporated into our fucking conversations on this podcast is the, is the word nuance, but it is nuanced and it is complex. And I think it's also advocacy at its truest form for our clients who are so desperately trying to find a landing spot, a place where they can feel safe and comfortable, a place where they don't have to re you know, explain everything over again. Maybe they, their circumstances are different, but they don't have to say and explain everything in a clinical interview like they typically would. Um, and I just think it's so powerful and so much more humanizing when we use identity-based language, when we are able to show up in those spaces. And I also think it's also really complicated, especially for those of us who have audiences, who have followings, as we're also unpacking our own identities, as we're also unpacking our own neurodivergent journeys, like for those of us who are diagnosed in adulthood, sometimes you get it wrong. And sometimes you're also in unpacking your own internalized ableism that's existed throughout most of your life. And I think then you walk it back and you learn and you try and you try again and you continuously show up even when you get it wrong. And I think that's the most important piece here for those of us who are showing up in public spaces. But again, I, I, I just cannot say enough how much I think that speaking out openly and disclosing and using identity-based language is just so important in terms of advocacy across the board for people who, who just don't feel safe enough to be able to do the same things that we can do. It certainly makes the counter-transference more hot is what I've noticed. Like when your client is working through things that you're also working through. Um, and Rebecca, I think, I think you've experienced some of that or am I projecting? Um, no, no, that's totally fine. Um, I've definitely experienced that. I, cause I, in real time, it was like, I was working with clients who were like, wait, is this, you know, what's been going on all these years and it explains all these things. And like, there's the relief and the like, aha of that, but there's also the grief and the pain that comes with that and holding that for clients in session, but also navigating that myself. Um, it was, it's a lot. And then I also think about the parent audience, which I also have, cause I work with young people, right? So like my teenage clients will be the first to tell you about my various neurodivergent tendencies um, because they have no problem with them or calling me out on them. Um, but with parents, then there, it raises those questions of like, will they doubt my competency? Like, what does that mean? And it was the same thing for me as coming out as queer of like, will parents then think I'm like luring their children into this lifestyle, um, which is not a thing. Um, but like, 
is a concern. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's the potpourri. That's going to be in the name of our uh, episode, potpourri. It's definitely going to be in the description somewhere, probably on the website too. I think the grief relief process is something we talk about a lot and I've experienced, you know, uh, pretty often, especially when I was formally diagnosed at 35, I'm 37 now, it's been a year and a half journey. And, um, but I think you're right. The countertransference is really intensified and, and, but, uh, but it, it's intensified and simultaneously the relief for the client has gone up exponentially. So I think both of those things, as my therapist saying is always like, both can be true. Those are both true. And like the ability for the client to, I also am someone who speaks openly about a former gambling addiction. When I've talked about that with clients, you see the immediate relief of like, oh shit, someone gets it. Like I am not alone in this. And that has always been my driving force for disclosure. It's never been about like, what does it do for me? I always want to throw that asterisk in there for any Both clinicians who want to be like, that's ethically uh, not sound. Like we don't disclose. But when we are talking about people who are represented within marginalized communities with intersection, intersectional identities, and I think it's, disclosure is that much more important of a therapeutic intervention. And I think that when you start to realize like, that's what it's about. It's not about what it does for my sense of self. It's more about like, what does it do for the person who feels like there is no glimmer of hope or that things will never change or be different? Yes. Yeah. And that's where that question of like, who is it for? It needs to be the guiding principle. Um, one other thing you said earlier that I just didn't want to leave out was, um, oh, there it goes. Brain processing. Um, it was about getting it wrong. I was terrified of getting it wrong. Um, and I still am right. Like there's, there's still a part of me that's like, well, I don't know, like according to the data, um, and you know, but in periods when I've been more burned out and gone back and retaken some of the assessments, I'm like, Ooh, those numbers look a little different. Um, but still, yeah, mm -hmm. it's a thing. We're, we're going to talk about RSD soon. And I think getting it wrong. Well, first of all, getting it wrong. Cause like we are all very justice oriented. So I think, especially when we get it wrong for our communities and for the most marginalized communities, like I know all of us feel that deeply. Um, and then also the like aspect of RSD and I just read like social justice RSD. I hadn't heard that term before, but also like a strong reaction to injustice but yeah, I know all I, because we've all had private conversations around this. I know how much we care about not getting it wrong and, and you can't be in public space and not step in it. Like, and it, and it's good, right? It means we're, well, it's not good, but it's a sign that we are learning. Yes. And there's a lot of unpacking to do even now and continuously. And I think that is important no matter what, but I think it's equal. It's even, it's so important when you do have public space that you take up because people are following you. People are listening to you. People are sharing your stuff. So I think there is even, it feels like almost this pressure to get it right. And that for me is a struggle sometimes because then I get into like perfectionism mode and I'm like, I have to get it right. I can't post this because if I, this could get picked apart in a hundred different ways. So then I have to step back and think like, okay, what is the purpose of what I'm creating and posting? Because if it's 
informative, it's, if it's supposed to be supportive, encouraging, et cetera, then I want to put it out there regardless of the fact that someone may say, next time you do this, you should probably use this uh, vernacular or this word or this verbiage. And that's okay. Cause then it's like, okay, I, I get that. And I will, I will do that the next time. But I don't want that to take away from the message either. That can often be missed if we are unwilling to put ourselves out there. And that's why we all have platforms because we're willing to put ourselves out there and talk about stuff that a lot of people shy away from. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the more self-disclosure I've done online in appropriate and boundaried ways, um, <laughs> for the therapist listening, um, has, I guess that right, has shocked me in its, uh, traction, right? It's the stuff where I'm like, oh, this is what the people want that gets like nothing. Um, but when I'm like, look, I'm messy, just like you, people are like, ah. um, and it's like shared all over the place. Um, right. Or recently in terms of unpacking identity and, uh, Megan, Annie, you and I have talked about this some as the reality of moving through the world as a queer person who holds a lot of privilege because I'm married mm -hmm. to a cis man. Right. And how navigating that has been tricky and interesting, but, all, and so I was so afraid of sharing about that and losing some of my queer followers who would be like, "Ugh, you're another one of those like next. Um, and I forgot or, you know, wasn't prioritizing the thousands of people who have reached out and liked and commented when I've shared like, Hey, this is actually what my life looks like. Um, and just in the last month have like built this small but growing community of women who are in straight passing relationships um, and navigating their queerness. And it's, it's just been really fascinating to see. Um, but I think I absolutely get stuck in that feedback loop of like, I was doing it yesterday with a post where I was like writing about protected time. And then I was like, oh, all I could hear was people being like, oh, nice that you have protected time. What a privilege. Bam, 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 bam. Um, <laughs> you know, and then I archived the post because I was like, oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, yeah, I love that. I've definitely been there, done that. First of all, I just want to say, I, I love how you have like talked so openly about the complexity around queer identity um, and how, yeah, like our marriage setup or partnership setup doesn't make an identity. And that, that was actually really empowering for me. I also remember we talked the weekend before you made the post of like kind of revealing that you are married to a cis man. Um, and I remember the anxiety of that. And I totally understood that. Um, but I love how you have come into that space. That's actually partly what gave me permission because it was that question of like, okay, I am queer. I'm like, my, our, our family's very queer as a, like, um, but I'm also like not in a queer partnership. So what do I do with that? And so the work you've done around identity, I think is so helpful because identity is so much bigger than the structure of our partnerships. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Should we shift to talk about identity and kind of uh, gender queer identity and neuro queer identity. I know that we've done a lot of work at that intersection. And I wondered if it'd be helpful to do some of a like bird eye view of some of the things that we discovered when we, when we were asking our audience and what we've presented on, would this be a good time to shift? Sounds good to me. 
Um, Rebecca, do you want to do the bird eye view? Like, oh, I feel like you're better. Interception. What'd you say? <laughs> I said, oh, I feel like you're better at that. Okay. Uh, I, okay. I will, I will try. And then you fill in the gaps. Anecdote. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So there, I mean, we know that there's a huge overlap of queerness and neurodivergence, both for autism and ADHD. It's um, a little bit more pronounced in autism than ADHD. So first I'll talk about sexual queerness. There's one study and as a um, disclaimer, it, it was a smaller study, but the study found that 70% of autistic people identified as non-heterosexual and the language non-heterosexual, they use that because it was, it also included people who were asexual and ace and, um, but essentially 70% identified as, as some form of, of queer. That's huge. Um, that the research also found it's more common among people assigned female at birth. So cis autistic men, so people like you, Patrick, are more likely to identify as heteronormative and heterosexual than mm -hmm. everyone else. So this gets... Um, I think even more pronounced when I start looking at gender queerness and particularly autism, but also ADHD. Um, there's a pretty big study done in 2021 that found that um, gender queer people were th three to six times more likely to be diagnosed as autistic than cisgender adults. Um, what's really interesting about that statistic is that only included people who were medically diagnosed. And so we would suspect that number would actually be significantly higher. Um, other studies have found that autistic children are like four times more likely than holistic children to be genderqueer. There's other studies out there. I'll link the infographic in this, um, in our podcast so people can go see the research, but essentially it's, it's a significant overlap between genderqueerness and neurodivergence, particularly autism and ADHD. Um, we also see similar rates in ADHD, not quite as high, but also also higher than in neurotypical um, children and adults. That's yeah. the bird view. How'd I do, Rebecca? That was good. It just made me think, do you, do you have like a gut instinct as to why that is? Oh gosh, I get that question so often. I've, and I've heard some really interesting speculations. Um, there's, I think there are some studies around like neuroanatomy, but I don't know those well enough to try and cite at the moment. Um, I think the idea of like how we relate to social norms, I think is part of it. I think we're much more, you know, social norms are constructs and I think we see them as constructs. I think that's always been my thought. Yeah. I, so I think we, we know they're there, but like I describe it as like, I analytically know they're there. I think holistic people experience them. Like they experience the social norms as real things. So I think we're much more likely to queer in the sense of queering social norms and explore. Um, I heard a really interesting theory recently about sensory because of heightened sensory. If someone was experiencing um, gender dysphoria, particularly, that would be a more intense experience so because of the body experience around that, which that was really interesting to me as well. Um, there's a few other kind of ideas out there, but I don't know. What about you? Why, why, what do you make of the overlap? Well, I just, I mean, so often I think about gender 
the the whole concept of the binary as being its own construct. And if you're yeah. not wed to constructs and you feel somewhat of a of a freedom to move in or out of them, it might give people an opportunity to consider possibility, right? Like so often I feel like when I work with people who are cisgender and holistic, they've never considered any other possibilities around their gender. They're just like, oh, well, this is what I got handed and this is what I still am. And like it had it's never been called into question, not even a like passing thought. Um, whereas, you know, obviously I, I spend the bulk of my time talking with trans and gender expansive folks, but um, I mean, I talk to anyone who will talk to me about gender. <laughs> Which also made me be like, oh, is that a special interest? Um, are people a special interest? Like, because I've been so, so social my whole life. Um, but anyway, sidebar. Social autistics exist. I, and I know you told me that. Um, and I still need to read that like lipstick. I don't remember the name of that book, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. the like outgoing one. Yes. I also forget the name of the book, but yeah, she is like a okay. very extroverted autistic. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think just being even curious enough to, to consider otherwise, um, feels more available to folks who are neurodivergent. Like they're like, well, I just want to see what's over here or like try this on and see how that feels. And, uh, just a willingness to play, I think, um, that feels different. I love that. A willingness to play. There's the sound bite. Nailed it. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Patrick, like you maybe have a thought, but I can't tell if you do. I like that we all, it feels like this is synced up though. Like everyone has a thought at the same time, which is what my experience was just happening. Like I was looking at Megan's face, I was looking at your face, Rebecca, and I was like, and I was also thinking. So I didn't have words to put into that into my thoughts. I, I honestly agree with with everything you're saying. So I'm just nodding and like thinking and just thinking about things differently because as someone who honestly has never really questioned my gender um, or identity, honestly, I, I always am curious about that in general because I'm like, I'm just processing what you're both saying right now. And I'm like, huh, this is Megan, your stat about what you say, 70% of cis hat autistic men don't ever question or did I get that? Oh, it's 70% of autistic people identified as non-heterosexual, but the 30, the low, like the most likely autistic population to identify as heterosexual are cis men. Okay. Yeah. That's what I was thinking about. And I was like, huh. So like the stereotype, the autistic right. stereotype. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So that's where my brain went. <laughs> yeah. But then I was thinking like, it makes a lot of sense about just playfulness and curiosity and being willing to break out of construct and just being like, yeah, this is fucking stupid. Like who told us we were supposed to live this way? I don't know. I think that makes a lot of sense in all areas when I'm thinking about a lot of just neurodivergent people in general. Absolutely. And I think Megan, Anna and I are great examples of the way in which that can happen in, in various orders for folks, right? Like a lot of times people will realize one of these things and then it frees them up to realize another. 
I did a story on my Instagram, but then the results didn't show. I don't think I like have enough tech savvy to try to do like polls on my Instagram stories and show results, which is ridiculous, but I can help you. (laughs) Thank you. I need help. Um, But the poll I did was which identity, if like, if one identity discovery led to the other, which identity came first and did it like, so was it the queer identity and did that lead to a neurodivergent discovery or vice versa? Um, and the, the, the results in the comments were really interesting. I really wish I knew how to show them better in a way that people could see them. Um, but yeah, I, I see that all the time where often discovery of one will open the door to the discovery of another. Yeah. And I think that's language. Sorry. No, it's okay. I was saying, I think, I think that even about language and pronouns, right? Like the idea that someone could use they, them pronouns doesn't often feel available um, to folks who feel really bound by linguistic rules, which can get really tricky for folks who are navigating gender expansive identity and also autistic, depending on kind of how their autism shows up, right? For some people, they're like, I, I can dance around some of these rules and other people are so bound by those rules. Um, and so it can get tricky. I, yeah, I agree with that. Um, when I was thinking, Megan, about your poll, do you think that any of this has to do with the fact that regardless of which identity, quote unquote, comes first or is discovered first, that it just feels freeing to have it discovered and see the world through a completely different lens? Because so many of us, and I cannot speak for um, any of the queer identity perspective, but so many of us who are neurodivergent, who are seeking something all of our lives and seeking like this landing place and this place to just feel home. I'm using a lot of air quotes right now, as if we don't record the video, um, feels freeing in a lot of ways. And I think that's just where my mind goes when you start to think about like, why does that one go lead into another perspective or, or identity or realization or aha moment? I think that's a similar experience for folks who come out later in life too, of there's been this longstanding, like something's not quite fitting here. Like, why do I feel just a little bit different? Um, and, you know, people who then in their thirties, forties, you know, late, whatever we're considering later in life diagnosed, um, then recognize like, oh, huh, maybe that's what it is. Um, and I think I see that fascinating. I'm fully sidebarring now. Um, so feel free to cut this, but um, I see that happening with people who are also recognizing either finding out they're autistic later because of their own child being diagnosed and then having that aha or for parents whose kids come out and then they're like, huh, that's actually something that I never thought about for myself. Um, and really kind of pull back the curtain on that and get to explore like, and that's where I see any, whether it's people who are exploring their neurodivergence or their gender identity, I see it as an opportunity for the whole family (laughs) Um, and everyone in their lives, really, um, to get curious about the ways in which that might be showing up for them too. I have certainly lived that where I think the first person to come out in our, in my like extended family, um, was one of my children at a youngish age. And then like that just kind of, yeah, it's like, it opened up a conversation that wasn't a conversation before. 
Um, and not just in our immediate family, but like beyond that. And it makes me so proud of these kids who like are owning who they are and then empower, like empowering the adults to do that. And I, like, I'm cringing as I say that, cause it sounds kind of like pure parentified to be like, the kids are empowering the adults, but I also think there's like generational movements and pieces in there where a lot of us just grew up, especially if we grew up religious in spaces where like it just, it just what, like how comfortably my family, like with our kids, we talk about queerness and we talk about identity. And like the fact that from a young age, we never defaulted to like, when you grow up and marry a man, it was like, when you grow up and have a partner, um, like that just wasn't accessible to so many of us who are in our thirties and forties and beyond. Absolutely not. Yeah. And, and adding the religious thing piece is a whole other element of that, which you and I have talked about too, of like, what part of why I am so comfortable <laughs> talking about gender and sexuality is I never got that messaging. Like sex was talked about in a really positive, just normal kind of like, it's okay to mention at the dinner table kind of attitude, um, which is baffling to, <laughs> to other people. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's, there are real shifts happening generationally, which is like what we really want to see. Right. I feel like that's my like life's work <laughs> is, is working towards that generational change where kids can, can be exactly who they are. Um, and we all need to catch up. That is a really good point that you both made, but that's exactly what I was saying before in terms of advocacy and having an audience, because when we're talking about movements, that's where this stuff comes from is advocacy efforts from, from people who are willing to show up and, and share their own stories. And that's my brain is diverging because Rebecca, you mentioned something before about like not wanting to post the messy side of life, but then those are the things people are always like, Oh yeah, that's, that's exactly what I need. It's just because as people, I just think we're, we're wired for connection and we want relatability and we want to know that we're not alone. Absolutely. So it's, it, that's the content too. That's like, you throw something up there, you don't perfect it. And you're just like, yeah, take a glimpse at like what this is like for me on a day to day. And people are like, holy shit, this is my life too. What? And I think it adds a layer when we're a therapist. I can't remember the name, but there's a New York Times bestseller a few years back now of a therapist who's maybe one of the first to like, the book is about her own mental health. And it was a really a breakthrough moment of like therapists talking about their imperfections because wow. In traditional therapy, it's like you go to the therapist, they're supposed to have it all together, all figured out. Um, and but I think people are really responding to it makes us more human as therapists if if we're, you know, we also have messy kitchens, we also are in process around identities. Now we know how to contain that, we know how to have boundaries so that like what's coming into that therapeutic space is intentional. Um but there's something really powerful that I've seen happening in the last five years, particularly where therapists are becoming more humanized. Yeah. And I think it had to happen. Like mm -hmm. it, this, the model of the blank slate, like barely says anything, just like furiously takes notes. Therapist is not, <laughs> doesn't work for people. Um, it certainly doesn't, wouldn't work for my clients. Um, it particularly not neurodivergent clients or many queer clients. It, no. it's not, it doesn't create safety. No, 
And now when I think about retention, I'm like, oh, no wonder people are still here. Cause like you can see what's all over my face all the time. <laughs> like there's no, and it was feedback I got in grad school, right? Like you should tone it down. And like the thing that the feedback I get from clients is like, it's so comforting to me because I always know what you're, what you're thinking or how you're responding to something or like that you're with me. Um, and it's not intentional. It's just my face. <laughs> Yeah, if it wasn't your face, it would be a lot of effort and energy into masking that expression or that reaction. Right, right. And I think clients are also, they really resonate with that of like, oh my God, like my wife will sometimes tell me I need to fix my face because my reactions are my reactions. And she's like, don't react that way in this environment. Right. I'm like, ugh. Um, but in, in the therapy room, it's really helpful. It's really therapeutic because it's like, it takes away from that guessing game that clients sometimes have to play of like, did that land the way I needed it to? Are you taken aback by what I said? Are you uncomfortable with what I just told you? Right. Um, and I like the new era of psychotherapy that we're moving into of like relatability because I strongly believe this. And I say this all the freaking time that relatability is accessibility. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I like and our that. webpage where our group practice says like, no head nodding. How does it make you feel therapists here? And like, we get so many calls from people who are like, yeah, you're our people. And my marketing person last year when we were creating the website was like, you're going to turn off a lot of clients who are uncomfortable with using the F-bomb and saying it this way. And I'm like, good, those are not our clients anyway. We don't want those people to call us. Right. Yeah. That's not your fit. Absolutely. I love that you say no head nodding. How does that make you feel therapy? Because that's the thing, right? Like, that's why people don't want to go to therapy. I hated therapy initially when I was forced to go as a child. And yep. like, <laughs> that poor woman, she tried to have me do art therapy and I scribbled with a black marker <laughs> all over a piece of paper and was like, what do you think of this? this. Yeah. <laughs> that's sassy. I love it. It was very sassy. She called my mom in and was like, I'm not sure that this is good. We can't fix her. Um, but what happened to me early on, similar environments is like this, the sterile nature of like, how can I ever open up and be myself and be, and feel comfortable enough to actually share what's happening for me. If it's just sterile and it's just head nodding and there's no response. And, you know, I, I just struggled with that so much growing up as someone who has been in and out of therapy since I was five. I, and just the reality and realization of like, you can be the best therapist in the world clinically and use every technique and intervention under the sun. But if there's no relatability and no ability to build relationship, rapport and connection, I'm not even listening to you. Like I'm already thinking about when I leave this place, I'm never coming back here. And yes. That's just the reality. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I just had a question pop into my head as you were uh, sharing that and I don't know if it feels okay to go here or not, but my, so again, feel free to skip this, but I just wonder what it was like for you having been in, in and out of therapy since five to not be diagnosed for another 30 years. I'm going to answer your first question first, which is, is it okay to go there? And we encourage all the divergent pathways on this uh, podcast. So absolutely. Um, it was, I, I think there's two answers here. I'm doing this hand motion again, Jesus. Um, but there are two answers, right? Like there's the answer here of me sitting here today who can like zoom out, look at life and be like, wow, that was really hard. And then there's the answer of like, 
if I could drop into that life at five and onwards, it was really hard, um, which is what made me seek out diagnosis because I kept, I've told Megan this a million times, I was seeking that, like, what the fuck is happening? Like, why is this happening to me? Like, why do I feel every second of every day of every experience in every situation so intensely? Why is it so hard for me to connect? Why is it like all of the questions that we ask ourselves that has been constant for 35 years of life. So I think it's also this, and I've said this publicly too, and I know my parents listen to this podcast, but it's just the, there's almost this, and I think for a lot of people who are my age and in this age group who were not diagnosed until later on, and like, like, what the hell is happening here? Like, where did this get missed? And my mom's response initially to my diagnosis was like, well, that wasn't my experience of how your childhood was. You were really social and you really, and I'm like, stop centering, right? Like, let's, let's make it more about what's happening today. Here's the information that I'm sharing with you. Um, but that's what it was. And my mom was at LCSW in private practice. Like, how do these things get missed? And I think it's because my parents are divorced. They've been divorced since I was five, very messy stuff. Um, I spent a lot of time alone, a lot, a lot of time self-soothing. I played soccer. I was in, like, that's what I was supposed to do. And that's just how reality was for me. And I think to sum up your question, the answer is hard, but in different ways, like hard now cognitively to think about it from a therapeutic perspective and as someone who's done a lot of work and then hard is like, damn, it was really hard just existing yeah yeah as, as thank you for sharing that i think as part of my searching for answers i went and reviewed some of my uh report cards and was like hello like <laughs> so clear it's like she won't she's so chatty like really smart getting stuff done but like real peaks and valleys of like like gravely struggling in some subjects and like off the charts and others. And, but the, again, there are just so many questions where I'm like, where were the grownups? <laughs> like, and it's also what information they had, right? Like I wasn't a boy who was obsessed with trains um, or I wasn't my sibling who was assigned male at birth who did get an ADHD diagnosis. Right. Uh, so, you know, it's, there are a lot of factors at play. Um, but I just think about that, like holding that reality of having been in various care settings for so long and still feeling like this didn't get picked up. Mm -hmm. I'm diverging yep. too now, but that reminds me there, there's an interesting emotional experience that happens. And, and I don't know your, your sibling, if this tracks, but when, let, okay. An example of, let's say one child has like level two or level three autism, or what would be, I guess I hear clinicians talk about like more severe ADHD. I don't obviously like that language, but like more impacted, more evident ADHD. When that child gets diagnosed, the child that perhaps maybe they're level one autism, or maybe they have, they internalize, um, that sibling often gets missed because so much of the resources is going to the child who's struggling more. And then when that, that sibling, like that's a, that's a unique experience as a sibling. And then when that sibling later in life discovers this identity, I have seen that be a really complex experience 
of like the word misattunement comes to mind. Like when you're asking Patrick about, yes, 30 years of therapy, essentially 30 years of misattunement. Um, when we're discovering that much of our life was happening in this context of misattunement, either from therapists or from our families, that's painful. Yeah. And much like Patrick, I had the, you know, the context of divorce, messy, very messy divorce and a whole, you know, there were so many things happening, um, that it wasn't the focal point. Um, and I was doing well in school, so it just didn't really matter. Um, cause there weren't, you know, and I didn't have behavioral issues besides being chatty. Um, Did you have mental health issues? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Right. That's the classic story, right? Like we internalize. I am like the queen of having a panic attack in the bathroom and coming back to class and looking like everything's fine. Um, so yeah, it totally, it came out in other ways and physical ways too, that I'm now tracking. I'm like, Oh, it's not normal for eight year olds to have migraines. Um, or like, you know, so consistently, um, or other, you know, various stomach stuff, right. GI is so often connected to, I, I missed so much high school, um, for like, what no one could figure out GI symptoms. They were just like, ah, take some Prilosec, good luck. Um, like, um, but it wasn't until I started managing my anxiety better that that made sense, right? Um, so yeah, there are so many, I think misattunement is a is a useful frame for that. Um, and I think feels really validating to, to think about it through that lens. Um, and I also have a mother who's a LICSW. Uh, wait and i have a dad who's a psychologist what oh, is wow. that like family systems wise that we all became ah, fascinating it is fascinating um and it's been fascinating to unpack some of that too like being like it's not just my sibling that has it like i have it and also like mom you might have it too um absolutely that stuff gets that's those are good conversations that have when you're able to have them. I was telling Megan that I had one with my dad while I took him to Spain for his birthday a couple of months ago. And I was like, we're, we're drinking, which I knew this conversation was going to come from that. But I was like, yeah, so I don't know if you've been listening to my podcast, but I'm autistic. You've never asked me about it. I think you're autistic too. And here are all the reasons why I think you're autistic. And instead of like this rebuttal or reaction, just like, yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, I don't know what to do with this information now. I was expecting a very different conversation. Wow. Oh. <laughs> but this is why I like, and I've talked about this on here too, like IFS work and reparenting work and your child work so much because even though it's still a struggle for me when my therapist is like, what would you do with five-year-old Patrick and how would you comfort him? And I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea how to answer that. But the parts work and the ability to to piece that together and like sess it out and like look at it from a million different perspectives is super useful for me and it's honestly the first modality that i've been like yeah this is my jam like everything else i don't care about anymore this is the only way i'll do therapy going forward same i do I like EMDR, so but i have oh. oh yeah you do emdr don't you mm -hmm. yeah not as much anymore mm -hmm. but it was useful I'm feeling a collective, like, is this our collective, the conversation's coming to an end, or is this a collective, like, sigh of the heaviness of what we've just been talking about? What is this? What is this energy I'm feeling? It felt more like the latter to me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but me too. Yes, me too. 
Yeah, I actually feel like we could have like a five-hour podcast episode right now, which feels really good. It feels like it's been a good conversation. I have no idea how long we've been talking. So to everyone listening, if you're still listening, uh, we appreciate it. <laughs> we've been talking for over an hour. So um, I think we can continue on. I think we can we can do a lot of different things right now. <laughs> Rebecca, do you have a hard stop at one your time? Okay. I don't. I actually, for the first, one of the very first times in my life, I put a buffer between <laughs> between this and my next, actually, I'm going to be on another podcast. <laughs> I'm having a podcast day. Um, but no, that's something that I'm learning to do for myself. Um, it's been really hard and it's still hard. Um, but I am trying to put space between things and not push myself past my limits. <laughs> it's really revolutionary. <laughs> I'm going to check in on you on that in like a month. I'm going to be like, how are the buffers? Because yeah, I've well, noticed that about your schedule. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I while we're on an IFS kick, I've explored that um, kind of urgency in in IFS. And that's been really interesting um, working with that and also like as a legacy burden, that's something that we inherit. Um, but also how much of that has to do with my neurodivergence and that I have so many ideas and I'm afraid I'll lose something or something's falling through the cracks or I'll forget if I don't hurry and do it right now. Um, or I'm like, oh, I need to empty the dishwasher. And then I'm halfway through that when something else comes up and yeah. Look at the collective head nodding right now. Yeah, <laughs> like the inability to trust my energy. You know what I mean by that? So like, if I have an interest in a project, I have to pounce, even if it means I'm staying up till one and I'm not doing any of the sleep hygiene stuff I always talk about because it's, I don't know that this interest, therefore this energy will be reliable and available to me tomorrow. So there is that like sense of urgency because I don't trust my mind or I don't trust my energy. And that's it. Like that's a hard aspect of being ADHD is the difficulty trusting, will my mind hold this? Will my energy be there? Will my interest be there? And not being able to predict, therefore schedule. I think that's why non-ADHDers, when they're like, let's do a planner and let's schedule. <clears throat> what they don't realize of part of why that's so hard for the ADHD brain, not just breaking up tasks, but like, I don't know what kind of energy I'm going to wake up with on Wednesday. Right. So how do I schedule out? Like, am I going to have a lot of cognitive energy, but not much body energy or flipped? Um, yeah. Did your camera just move? It did. Yes. When I do hand motions, it moves. It's not making things up. <laughs> oh. Oh. That happened. Cool. Now it feels like we're in the ending place. That's at least how I'm picking up on what we're experiencing. You know what I realized though? We never talked about the thing we said we were going to talk about with like the polls and stuff, which we don't need to. Oh, like the, um, the getting into the detailed experience of when these identities intersect. Yeah. Yeah. We can link to our masterclass that we have where we do like, and I think that's probably a better, cause that's more of a kind of content lecture based presentation. And that's probably a more helpful way to absorb all that kind of high up information. But yeah, basically when the identity 
when the identities intersect, it's really complicated. It complicates both identities. Um, you and I have talked about that a lot from like sensory to executive functioning to navigating medical systems. And yes, we have a whole master class. It's an hour long that's available. Oh, we should make a coupon code for people who listened so that they can get it at a lower rate. Um, I'll do that and we'll put it in the notes. But is there anything that we didn't talk about around that intersection that you feel like is important? I think probably um, just acknowledging that some of the challenges will be a little bit different and mm -hmm. try your best as hard as it can be to find a provider who will understand both of those experiences, which mm -hmm. is tricky. It's tricky. Um, and if not, you made that helpful flow chart of kind of like, which one is harder right now um, and focusing on that. Like mm -hmm. if it feels like the autism is like the key piece, then find someone who really knows their stuff about autism and hopefully is decent about gender uh, mm -hmm. and kind of fill in the gaps where you can or vice versa. Um, because there aren't a lot of us who, right. who are, you know, equally as hyper fixated on this intersection. Um, uh, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, we should also do a shout out to Finn's work. Um, we're both in Finn's consultation group, Finn Grodin. They have um, Supporting Autistic Youth, I think is the title. Um, I have it back here. I'll, I'll link that in the show notes as well. Um, but that's it for clinicians listening. Please go buy that book. It's amazing. Um, and I, I think also for parents, it's a great resource. And even for individuals, I think it's a really validating read. <clears throat> um, it's not necessarily intent. It's more intended for parents and therapists, but I, I, I think for individuals, it's also a great read. So, um, there are some wonderful resources available at this intersection and, and we will point to some of those. Yeah. And I think it's a danger to assume that you're never going to need to know that, or it's not your population that you work with. <clears throat> mm -hmm. Like I didn't focus a lot on autism because I was like, I'm in the gender world. And then I was like, wait a minute, I can't, you literally cannot be in the gender world without also understanding autism. And same ways, you cannot be working with neurodivergent clients and not understand gender queerness. So, yeah. um, and that's one thing that's also been really nice with the parent coaching is being able to work with parents who are navigating both of those pieces and, and they do present with different concerns, um, around their kid less so like do that are they really trans or do they really know but more just that I think they've been very hands-on parents a lot of the time because of what's because often the neurodivergence yeah absolutely yeah of that mm -hmm. um, and like that kind of like autism mom trope mm -hmm. uh of and like needing to be on top of every detail and like it really blindsides them because they're like, no, I know my kid and I know what they need. Um, mm -hmm. And navigating that combination um, can be really tricky. And especially really medically, because medical providers might see that and be like, is the parent pushing yes. this gender identity piece? The kid needs to be more involved, but maybe the child um, cannot speak in those in those medical settings, maybe. And so the parent often becomes more of an advocate and that gets complicated when navigating gender for me, medical care. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Three pieces too of like, oh, well, they're saying they want us to call them this new name and these new pronouns, but they're not changing their clothes. And I'm like, well, have you considered that those are the clothes that are familiar and they're comfortable 
Um, and that like, frankly, a lot of women's clothes, what we consider women's clothing is not comfortable. Um, <laughs> so, you know, maybe they're not wanting to like shimmy themselves into something that's so tight they can't breathe. Um, and that's not an indicator of whether or not they're exploring their gender. Um, so yeah, Absolutely. that's what I'm happy to help people with. <laughs> yeah. Can you share a little bit about where people can find you? I know you've got several resources for parents and yeah. Can you share a little bit about that? My website is genderspecialist.com. Um, and on there you can find, I have a course called how to talk to kids about gender. That's for all parents. Um, it's not specific to, to folks who have trans or gender expansive kids, but just if you know or care about kids, here are some helpful ways to talk about gender with them. Um, and then also information about parent coaching, um, which is great because it's not bound by licensure. So I can work with folks wherever they are. Um, so I've actually been able to do some of that internationally lately, which is really cool. Um, and, um, otherwise I have lots of free downloads and like a glossary of terms. Cause there's a lot of language to learn. Um, and, and some basics, like now what guides of like, okay, so my kid just came out like, now what? Um, so I've got you covered there. Um, and lots of blogs. So. Um, and then, as you mentioned earlier, I'm also on Instagram at gender specialist dot, oh wait, no gender dot specialist. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know, I know your schedule is wildly busy. So <clears throat> thank you. Oh my gosh, my voice. <clears throat> thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your schedule to, to talk with us. I've, I've really, this has been a fun conversation. Uh, thank you so much. It was so nice to finally meet you, Patrick. Yeah, you too. This was great. So really awesome conversation. Thank you so much for being on here. Thanks, guys. And to everyone listening to the Divergent Conversations podcast, all of Rebecca's information will be in the show notes, links, all of the things we talked about today, all the things that Megan mentioned as well. And new episodes are out on every single Friday. Like, download, subscribe, and share. And now, pause for a word from our sponsors. From new patients faced with an empty lobby and no idea where to find their therapist, to clinicians with a session running overtime and the doorbell ringing, some of the most anxiety-ridden moments of a therapy appointment happen before a session even starts. This episode's sponsor, The Receptionist for iPad, helps you tackle some of that pre-appointment apprehension and anxiety. The Receptionist for iPad is an easy-to-use digital client check-in system that helps your visitors check in securely to their appointments and notify their practitioners of their arrival via SMS, email, or your preferred channel. No more confusion, endless lobby checking, or having clients sign in on paper logbooks. It can even help you upgrade and update your demographic information for your clients as well and even validate parking. Start a 14-day free trial of The Receptionist for iPad by going to thereceptionist.com slash private practice. Make sure to start your trial with that link, and you'll also get your first month free if you decide to sign up.